Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Continuing our study through Paul's second epistle to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus. This morning we come to chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8 and reading through verse 13. Please give your attention to God's word. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Last week, as we looked at the first seven verses of chapter 2, we saw that Paul had his deep concern to encourage Timothy, to enable him to fulfill his mission. We talked about his mission being to point others to Christ and to teach them to walk as disciples of Christ, to preach the gospel and to teach people to live in the gospel. But as we know, Timid, Timothy struggled. He was uh, often had to be encouraged. We see it in both the letters that Paul wrote. And last week we saw how he used three examples for Timothy to think about as he pursued his ministry, as he pursued his calling in life. He, he put before him the image of a soldier trying to please his commanding officer. And then secondly, he told him to think about an athlete that was struggling to win the crown. And then thirdly, he talked about the farmer who worked hard to bring in the harvest. And he tells Timothy to think about these images in relation to his own ministry, which outwardly will look very different from all those callings, but at its very core was very similar. And one of the things that's common to all three of those pictures, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, is that they all expect to face hardship in order to be successful in what they're doing. They all expect hardship. The soldier expects pain and deprivation in both, of his, both his training and in his going to battle. The athlete expects to give up comfort and ease and earthly pleasures in order to excel at what he does and to win. The farmer expects long days of hard work under a beating sun in order to bring in the harvest. All of these people would expect failures and frustrations along the way to success. And so what Paul is trying to say to Timothy and therefore also saying to us in whatever our calling is in life, and we all share the common calling, remember, to point people to Christ and to help them learn how to walk in the ways of Christ, to share the gospel and teach people to live in the light of the gospel. He's telling all of us to expect and endure hardship as we pursue those goals 
No pain, no gain is the message that Paul often gives to Timothy. It's really a core message of his entire ministry. If you remember, go back to Acts 14, where it described Paul's, one of Paul's missionary journeys in this way. It said he went from church to church, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. To be strengthened and to be encouraged is to understand that through many tribulations, we enter into the kingdom of God. Paul was not a health and wealth preacher. Do you expect hardship in your calling? Do you expect difficulties, frustrations, even failures as you pursue what God has called you to do? I think that's one of the problems in this comfortable, prosperous society that we live in, is we don't expect hardship. And then when hardship hits us, we complain and moan like it's something we don't deserve, like something that's been thrust upon us that we shouldn't have expected. Jesus promised us in Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is what we're called to in this world. We, are, we see something by faith that the world cannot see. We live for goals that the world does not care about or even understand. And to the degree that they do understand them, they hate them and stand opposed to them. It's a hard life. I think we struggle. Of course, we're talking about opposition to our faith. And when we think about persecution, I think we struggle because when we hear the word persecution, what comes to mind are the great martyrs of church history being tied to a stake and burned as they profess their faith. Or people getting their heads chopped off. Or even Pastor Brunson serving in prison in Turkey for years because of his faith, because of his preaching of the gospel. That's what we think of when we think of persecution. But I think if you look at scripture, persecution is actually a much broader category than that. And I think that every Christian will face opposition for their faith. Whether within, from within our family, from within our friends, our co-workers, our neighborhood, or the culture at large, we will face opposition for our faith. I think one of the ways that's helpful to think about what persecution is, is it's anything that brings difficulty into your life because Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Anything that you have to face in life that is hard because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, in a very real sense, suffering for the gospel. So, when you struggle with temptation and sin, you are struggling because of your relationship with Christ. If Christ wasn't in your life, you wouldn't struggle against sin. You would give in. Think about the loss of popularity, people who have rejected you because of your relationship and your identity with Christ. That's suffering for the gospel. That's suffering for Christ. When you struggle to respond to the sins of others against you because of your relationship with Christ, the way that you respond is with grace and forgiveness, not with retaliation. That's a struggle because of your relationship with Christ. Any sacrifice of your time, your energy, your resources in order to serve others, that goes against your nature. It's, it's a struggle. It's hard. It's because of your relationship with Christ. 
Any decision that you make to give up status in the eyes of this world, to give up income, to give up reputation because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. All these things are hard. They're hardships. They're hardships that you have in your life as a believer because Jesus Christ is Lord and you serve him with your life. You are his disciple. Well, how can we then adopt the attitude of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer? when it comes to facing these kinds of hardships. Well, as he often did, Paul begins by pointing to Christ, and then he points to himself as examples. He does that in this passage. He starts by pointing Timothy and all of us to Jesus Christ. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now, you might think, well, Timothy's a pastor. How could Timothy forget Jesus Christ? How could that possibly happen? But isn't that what happens when you suffer? When life gets hard? Isn't it so easy in the midst of hardship and trial and difficulty to forget Jesus Christ? To get caught up in your suffering, your grief? In the midst of your hardship, Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Struggles, we talked about in struggles, it strengthens our faith, but that's because, first of all, it shows how weak our faith is. And having a weak faith means losing sight of what is true and who is true, forgetting Jesus Christ. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. I love it as deep, and when you think about the gospel, I've spent my whole life studying the gospel and I feel like I'm still scratching the surface. It's such a deep and complex thing. There's so much that can be written about the gospel. And yet, Scripture often will throw in these little phrases and summarize the, the gospel beautifully in just a couple of phrases like Paul does here. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. If you think about it, all you really need to know about the gospel is really in those two phrases, isn't it? It's a summary of who Jesus is, and what he has done for us. Risen from the dead, think about it. That was the focus of every sermon of the apostles in the book of Acts. If you study the book of Acts, you study the sermons that the apostles give in the book of Acts, the central point of every one of those sermons is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul summarizes the gospel there and the key to that summary is God, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, just as God said he would, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, just as God said in advance he would. In a very real sense, the whole Old Testament is given to us to understand why Jesus Christ had to go to the cross. The Old Testament is given to us to show that we are separated from God by our sin. And that having sinned and broken God's law and coming under his holy wrath and condemnation, the Old Testament is given to us to show us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what the Old Testament priesthood was about. That's what the Old Testament animal sacrifices were about. That's what the Old Testament temple was about. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That a sinless one would have to come and die in the place 
of God's people in order for them to be forgiven, to be made clean. And the resurrection was the proof that Jesus Christ was that one. He was the perfect one. He's the one who shed his blood in our place to bear the penalty of our sin. And the resurrection proves, think about it, the resurrection proves that God accepted that sacrifice. If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, that's one thing we would know is he was not the righteous one. He was not the one who hung on the cross in my place because if he wasn't raised from the dead, then God did not accept his sacrifice. His resurrection proves that the blood has been shed and we have been forgiven. In Romans chapter 1, it says Jesus was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. We know that he was God because only the Son of God could die and bear the penalty for all of the sins of God's people. And then Paul says he was the offspring of David. Very simple, profound truth there. Yes, Jesus was God, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, but he was fully human. He was fully human and fully God. And being of the seed of David, being of the family of David, he is the one who was promised for generation upon generation that would take the throne and establish the kingdom of God and once and for all do away with sin and do away with evil and do away with all the enemies of God and establish a perfect kingdom and restore the beauty and purity and holiness of the Garden of Eden. He was the messianic king. He was the promised one, the offspring of David. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. So when the road gets hard, when your life gets difficult, when you're facing these kinds of struggles in your faith, remember Jesus Christ. Remember his victory at the cross and his sovereign reign over not just your life, but all the universe. That nothing happens outside of his control. One commentator this week I read summarized it in this way. He said, remember the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. The tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. That's what Paul means when he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's why he summarizes all the depth and all the, the, the profound and and amazing things that, God, that Paul says about the gospel in the book of Romans. He summarizes it in this wonderful uh, climactic passage at the end of Romans 8 where he says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that's the kind of confident living that Paul is encouraging Timothy and he's encouraging all of us to have because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he is the offspring of David. So remember his victory, but also remember his example. 
When you think, would you have to suffer because of the gospel in your life? When you have to suffer because of your identification with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, remember his example, how he suffered. Peter points us to this beautifully in chapter 2 of his epistle. He begins in verse 20 by saying this. He says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When you suffer because of your identification with Christ, suffer the way that Christ suffered. He did not retaliate. He did not resort to sin. He did not revile. He suffered entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, he knew that God would do what is right. His Father in heaven would do what is right. He entrusted to him and suffered with kindness and gentleness and love for his enemies. Over in chapter 4, the first five verses, Peter says again, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, he's saying the same thing. Live for holiness... And when the world abuses you because you're committed to doing the will of God as it's given in Christ Jesus, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Follow the example of Christ. Remember the victory of Christ and remember the example of Christ as his disciple. And then Paul shifts the, the, the focus and he says, look at my suffering. He often does this in his writings. Look at my obedience sometimes, he says. But in this case, he says, look at my suffering. In verse 9, he speaks of this gospel that we've just been describing. And he says, my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Paul was a Roman citizen. And he was innocent, totally innocent of the charges that were against him that had led to his imprisonment. He was unjustly imprisoned. He was beaten. And he was condemned to death. So, you see the similarity. He shared in Christ's sufferings, who also was innocent, who also was beaten, who also was condemned to death. You see, that's what it means to identify with Jesus Christ, is to make yourself vulnerable, available, to face the same kind of rejection, the same kind of suffering that he faced from a world that was opposed to him. The world rejected Christ and condemned him as a criminal. And he was hung on a cross with other criminals. Matter of fact, the only other time that the word criminal shows up in the New Testament, the word that Paul uses here in chapter 2, is referring to the two criminals that died with Christ. 
Paul was willing to share in the sufferings of Christ. But the important thing that Paul wants us to remember is not to feel sorry for him and all that he went through. What he wants us to remember is what he goes on to say here, but the word of God is not bound. The world can confine us. The world can muzzle us. The world can banish us. The world can kill us. But it cannot stop the spread of the word of God. There is no country on earth that has tried harder to stomp out the church and stop the spread of the word of God than the nation of China in the last several generations. Matter of fact, up until, well, actually at the beginning of this year, the only place you could buy a Bible if you were in the land of China was online. But then I heard in April that they actually shut down that so that you couldn't even buy a Bible online in China. And yet... Ten, they, the, the, what they tell us is there's 10,000 people every day that are making new professions of Jesus Christ, of their Lord and Savior, in the nation of China. And that by the year 2030, there will be 250 million professing Christians in the nation of China, which will make it the country with the most Christians on earth, more even than America. The word of God is not bound. And God uses the suffering of his people to advance the kingdom and to advance the spread of his word. That is true if you know anything about church history. It's proven over and over again that when the world tries to stomp out the church and stop the spread of the word of God by making Christians suffer, it actually causes the word of God to spread more. Isaiah 40 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Paul had an example of this in his own ministry. In Philippians chapter 1, he talks about his first imprisonment. And he says that while he was in that prison in Rome, this is how he describes that experience. He doesn't focus on how much he suffered. This is what he says, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the, the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Then he goes on to acknowledge that some of those in the church preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others do it from goodwill. In other words, some had the wrong motivation for taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment to go out and preach the word. But at the end, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Again, he's saying the word of God is not bound. The gospel is going forward. And that's what really counts. You see, for Paul, it's all about the mission. Can you say that about your life and your discipleship? For Paul, it was all about the mission. He goes on to say in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see, he's like the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. He's willing to endure the hardship because it advances the cause, the spread of the gospel. And here he puts it in terms of the salvation of the elect. False accusations, injustice, beatings, cold dungeons, loneliness, all of this was worth it if God used these things to bring the gospel to, to his people 
so that they could believe and receive eternal life in Christ. I think he mentions the elect here to remind us of the assurance of the success of the mission. Because as we talk about these things, we don't ever want to get the idea that if any one of us fails, the mission will fail. We can fail, and we miss out on the blessing when we fail. But God will save his people. The elect that he's talking about are those who were chosen, according to Ephesians 1, were chosen before the foundation of the world to be his people. The ones that were given by the Father to the Son that Jesus talks about in John chapter 17. The ones for whom Christ died. Not a single one of those for whom Christ died will be lost. But he uses us and our witness to bring them into the kingdom. That is our mission. And Paul is all about that mission. Matter of fact, he talks about this mission in an interesting way. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says something that sounds objectionable. It sounds like there's something seriously wrong with it. I want you to listen carefully to what he says. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Again, see that connection? My sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Did you pick up on what sounds off there? What doesn't sound right? How could Paul's sufferings fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings? Haven't we just said that Christ's sufferings at the cross did all that needed to be done for us to be saved? When he died on the cross, he said the last words out of his mouth were, it is finished. The blood had been shed. All that needs to be done for us to be forgiven, made clean, and made new in Christ had been done at the cross. How could Paul's sufferings ever add anything to what Christ had already done? And the rest of the New Testament makes clear nothing that Paul did, not, not his sufferings, not his good works, nothing, nothing that any of us do could ever add to what Christ did at the cross. But what Paul's talking about, again, he's talking about the elect. And the elect were not completely saved at the point where Christ died on the cross. Everything that needed to be done was done at the cross, but there were still things that had to happen for God's people to be saved. The gospel had to be preached. The Holy Spirit had to change hearts. People had to profess faith and trust in Christ and be justified by faith alone. And having been justified, the Holy Spirit would begin to sanctify us. And through the course of our lives, until Christ comes again, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying his people, and one day we will be glorified in his presence. And on that day when Christ returns, then Christ's work will be complete. And so there's a real sense that as you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, suffer today for the purpose, for the sake of getting the gospel to the elect that they might hear, believe, and be saved, and be sanctified and glorified, that as we suffer for that purpose, we are completing what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Because as the church suffers, Christ continues to suffer until his work is done. When you understand your suffering in that light, then you understand why Paul could say, I rejoice in my sufferings. Because it advances the cause. It advances the kingdom. It fulfills the mission. Your suffering, no matter how great or how small, always has a purpose. 
I think that's one of the hardest things in life is when we feel like our suffering has no purpose. All the suffering that you have in life has a purpose. It's to point others to Christ. Even if just by your own example of suffering and faith, to point people to Christ that they might experience what Paul calls salvation that is in Christ Jesus and with eternal glory. And that's why Paul ends the way he does. In verses 11 through 13, he talks about glory. The glory that awaits. This part was, may have been a part, of, in most of your translations, it's in a, a lyrical form or a poetic form. Um, it's because it, they think it might have been part of an early church creed or a, uh, an early church hymn. But Paul obviously makes these the word of God as he quotes them. He says, if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. This is your reward. And yes, even though we are saved by grace, we still live for a reward. Everything we do is to gain a reward that God has promised to his people. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. In that first part, it sounds dying with Christ and living with Christ. It might remind you of Romans 6, if you know the content of Romans 6. There Paul talks in talking about sanctification. He talks about dying with Christ at the cross and being raised to new life and righteousness. And he's talking about sanctification. And I think that is included in the idea here, but the focus, as we've seen, is on external struggles, uh, facing opposition, struggling from the world and the, and the effects of sin as a result of our relationship with Christ. And so it's external battles, not internal ones. And so what Paul's really referring to when he talks about dying with Christ, he's talking about dying to this world and dying to self. Living for Christ and not living for the world anymore. Living for Christ and not living for ourselves anymore. Living to glorify Christ instead of glorifying ourselves. And that means being willing to give up the popularity that this world has to offer. To give up the comforts that this world has to offer to us. The pleasures of sin that the world offers. The reputation that the world offers to us the status and the rewards that this world offers, to die to those things, to be willing to set them aside, to give them up in order to pursue the mission that he has given to us. And Paul says, remember, we already live and reign with Christ and there is a far greater experience of it to come. Paul describes this way of living the Christian life in Colossians chapter 3 when he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you have died with him, you will live with him. If you endure, you will reign with him. This is why we do what we do. But then there's a warning, if you'll notice, to deserters of the kingdom. He says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. There are some who think that they are elect, act like they are elect, they're part of the church, they profess faith, but they're not truly born again, and they'll prove so by one day walking away and falling away from the faith. They will not endure the suffering for the gospel. 
Jesus talked about these people when he, talked, when he told the parable of the seeds and the sower. And these are the people who were like the seed that was sown on rocky soil. Jesus described those people saying, they, they endure for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the world, of the word, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And to those who are like Judas, who, as Hebrews 6 describes, are like those who taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fall away. There's a warning here. If you do not endure in the face of suffering, then you will be denied by the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again. Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And some have actually interpreted that last phrase to mean that if we fall away, if we reject Christ, if we deny Christ, he is faithful to his gospel promises and he will save you anyway. But that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, just as he's faithful to his promise to save those who have faith and endure in faith until he comes again, he is also faithful in his promise to judge those who reject him and deny him. And so those deserters will receive the fulfillment of Christ's promise when he said in Matthew 10, 33, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Or in Luke 9, 26, when he says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those who deny him will hear him say on that day, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so this passage, which is meant to encourage Timothy, is also given as a warning to those who, unlike Timothy, would fall away when life gets hard, when the cost of discipleship starts to set in. And I think it's a good time for us to ask the question, does my relationship with Jesus Christ make a difference in my life? Am I paying a cost? Is my life harder because of my relationship with Jesus Christ? Sometimes when you look at your life in light of that, you realize, you know what? I don't live that much differently than the world. I'm not paying much of a cost for my faith. Like Christians, or as Christians, like soldiers, athletes, and farmers, we are to expect our mission to be long, hard, and painful. The scriptures promise us that. But... The scriptures also promise us that the joy in the journey and the reward at the end make it much more than worth it. John 14, 33 says, Jesus said to us, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, he is the offspring of David, we know that he will be faithful to his promises. If we believe the promise that if we have faith in him, we are forgiven, we are given eternal life, and he will complete the good work that he began in us. We will endure and we will receive eternal reward at the end. And it's that eternal reward that makes the whole mission worth it. There's an old gospel song that I heard when I was a brand new Christian. I, I, the version I heard was Andre Crouch version. But the, the title of the song was, If Heaven Was Never Promised to Me. 
And one of the, 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 the lyrics of that song go on to say, if heaven was never promised to me, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life. And I do like the sentiment, and it very much appealed to me. For years, I just rejoiced in what that was saying, is that my life is so much better because I have a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And I would never want to go back and live the old life that I used to live. And so I rejoiced in that. But then I realized, and actually it was John Piper in his book, uh, Desiring God, pointed out to me that that song is actually wrong. That Paul would have a big problem with that song. Because listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, or in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul is saying is if Christ is not risen from the dead and if we don't have eternal life, if we've not been forgiven because of his resurrection, and if we don't have eternal life, then we are missing it. Because the Bible says if Christ is not risen, if God doesn't have a plan of salvation, the Bible says over and over, then eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Because the only reward, the only happiness, the only good things you're going to get are what you can get in this fallen world. You see, we live for the life to come. We live for the resurrection. All of our reward is there. And we're dying to earthly rewards. We're setting aside the blessings of this life so that we can have eternal life with Christ. And if that's all a myth, if that's not true then Christians are the most pitied people on earth. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. I'll close with this. We are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, help us to remember Jesus Christ in all the trials and tribulations and struggles that are to come. Lord, more and more, help us by faith to keep our focus on him who has run the race so well before us. Lord, give us greater hope and may that hope Change the way we live our lives day in and day out. And Lord, make our lives all about the mission. All about seeing the elect experience the salvation that Christ accomplished for them at the cross. Thank you that you've given us a part in that great work that will continue until the day when Christ comes again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.